Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Hello? 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 So weird. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, Josh, how's it going? Doing pretty well, kind of just on phone calls and stuff. But uh, first things for, oh, Nikesh is here. How are you doing, Nikesh? Hey, uh, Nikesh. Uh, one thing, first thing, welcome to Clubhouse. But if you click on my profile, you can make me a moderator. And just so I can, uh, I can filter the crazy people. Done. Cool, cool. This is like, uh, well, awesome. How's your Thanksgiving? Uh, pretty good, thanks. Yeah, just uh, relaxing. We'll be traveling for Christmas, so we're staying home for Thanksgiving. Oh, so I don't think. I don't think. I don't think that's. I think this COVID stuff. I think they're gonna. Sh we'll see how bad this variant is, but uh, uh, yeah. depending, depending on. Uh, well, I, I think I lost like two percent of my money today, so uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go take a, take a little walk <laughs> and deal with it. But uh, I think we all lost two percent of our money today. Uh, uh, but um, yeah, great to have you here. It's not bad. It's not that bad actually. I have hopefully these startups go public. Uh, hopefully Hexcon goes public one of these one of these days. That'd be cool. That'd uh, be cool. Yeah. But um, well, congrats on twenty three and me. I mean, you already, you already you, oh, that already went public. But uh, uh, yeah, great to have you here. I think really excited yeah. to have Brian here to just have a conversation about his career, his work, and just about biology in general. Uh, you know, I met Brian not in through a friend of mine, the Farlow brothers, at a, mm -hmm. a an investment dinner, and so me mm -hmm. and Brian have gotten to know each other over the years, and and uh, Brian, I, I love hyping people up, so let me let me try to hype you up as much as possible. And Brian, <laughs> uh, Brian's an incredible biologist and engineer, and he's a superstar. I think more and more people should uh, get to know his work, and I'd really recommend you you read his his uh, website, Bullion Biotech. Uh, it's really, I re I'm a huge fan of that CGM thing you did. Uh, you oh, kind of measure, that was a really cool. I, I've never seen anybody do that so comprehensively. Um, yeah, I went you, overboard. You did, you did. You went a little overboard there. So I recommend you you you, you read that uh, great blog post. He has a lot of other great blog posts. Uh, but yeah, I think Brian, maybe you want to do a quick introduction on yourself, and then we can go from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm Brian Nocton, um, mainly a genomics guy. Um, I've I did a PhD in biomedical informatics and then was founding scientist at 23andMe. That was um, 2006, 2014, something like that. Um, then I left 23andMe, spent a couple of years doing sort of other things. I think that's when I met you, Josh. Um, and then co-founded Hexagon around four years ago uh, with Maureen Hillenmeyer and Colin Harvey. And we've been working on you know, using fungal genomics to discover new natural products ever since. 
Cool. I think I think it'd be, for me personally, I never asked you this question, but yeah. I, I, it'd be great to go to Trinity. So you went to Trinity, uh, is it Trinity College in Ireland. That's right, uh, Trinity College Dublin. Did, were you, oh, Dublin. Were you born in Ireland or did you like go yeah. there? Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. You were born, how do you, how do you not have an Irish accent? Did you go to school for that uh, or? Well, you know, I, I've lost, <laughs> I've lost my accent somewhat over the years, over the oh. 20 years, but there are a lot of accents in Ireland, and um, they don't all sound like this. <laughs> so if you're, from, if you're from South, the part of South Dublin I'm from, um, the accent is actually not very strong. So okay, anyway. you, have like, you have like a slight, like it's like slight, but it's uh, uh, yeah. Okay, it's very. There's something I'm it's a little curious about. I think it's like uh, I'm half British, so I had a British accent as a kid. Yeah. So my my uh, uh, I, I was like in third grade. And my teachers, they sent me to a class to like not have British accent, and it's like, <laughs> like it's hor horrible, right? Imagine me with a British accent, how cool I would be. Now yeah. I, talk like, I talk like this, so I can tell something right. curious, curious about. But <laughs> seriously, that was a serious thing. I had to go, I had a language class for a year, and I had to learn how to say R, R, and uh, oh, I still haven't mastered that one. Yeah, saying R is so yeah. hard. Actually, it took me a year to figure it out. But uh, yeah, I still say or like PCR. Yeah. I'll never change that one. <laughs> but how was Trinity? Trinity is a really iconic uh, university. I mean, Schrodinger gave his what his life speech there. That's but, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe you can discuss how you got into biology. You know, any formative yeah. experience at Trinity and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about that actually because I feel like it was uh, pretty important um, to me, and uh, it, they they did a really good job of sort of being ahead of the curve. And, you know, it's a, it's a good university. It's a, I mean, it's a very good university, but they're not always like ahead of the curve, right? Because it's um, 500 years old or whatever. But this, uh, this professor there, David McConnell, had sort of uh, been to the U.S. He'd gone to Caltech and, you know, worked under, I don't know, I think he maybe worked with Kornberg at some point. So he'd sort of seen the, you know, the foundations of, of early, early biotech. And when he came back to Ireland, he set up a genetics department in Trinity. And then as part of that department, he set up a very small uh, program called human genetics because he just wanted people to learn human genetics. So in my class, my human genetics class, there were only eight people. And this was um, 1997 we started. And I mean, that was pretty early, right, for to have a specific genetics class. But he was sort of convinced that genetics was you know, on the rise, they had sort of strong geneticists in that, um, in that department. And um, a few sort of random, ace, pretty random people from around Ireland selected that course and got in. Because you, in Ireland, um, you do your, what's called leaving search. So at the end of high school, you take this big exam, you get a certain number of points, and then you rank order your preferences in in university and then you go into whatever matches right your sort of um whatever your points allow you to do so medicine traditionally would be very high points and then human genetics was sort of a weirdo outlier um and uh, just a few of us decided to to completely jump into the, <laughs> jump into the dark on that one um so actually of the eight of us four are now in the bay area um, actually, that's not true. Uh, my friend was in the Bay Area. Now he's in New York uh, working at Oxford Nanopore. And then another uh, one of my classmates is at Zymergen. And another one of my classmates uh, was at 10X. And now um, she's at some other company that I don't remember. But half the class actually ended up in the Bay Area, which I thought was kind of crazy. Um, so yeah, anyway, Trinity was, was great in that way. That's awesome. Well, I think there's always these kind of hotbeds of talent and they just... I'm always amazed how people self-assort. Yeah, right? and it's always, always in, in it's throughout history, just these talent hubs, and they all kind of you know. And so let's talk about another talent hub you're part yeah. of, maybe maybe even bigger at Stanford. So how did you go from Ireland yeah. to Stanford? Uh, was it kind of uh, was there mentor viewers that motivated you? Was it a particular researcher you wanted to, or did you just want to go to Silicon Valley and just 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 make your stake your claim? Um, sort of like a lot of other people, I wanted to do you know, a, a PhD. And I was um, actually, again, lucky that one of the professors at uh, Trinity in the genetics department was a guy, Ken Wolf, who was an early bioinformaticist um, working on yeast genomics. 
so there was a lot of scope to get exposure to uh, genomics and um, computational biology there, which again, sort of fortunate. So I knew I wanted to do a PhD in something computational. And then um, I'm not sure exactly why I, I thought I would um, apply to US universities, but it seemed like the, the thing to do. So I applied to a few of them, um, UCSF and Stanford, especially I think were um, at the top of the list. I think I just didn't want to go somewhere cold. And then I was very lucky to get in to Stanford and, you know, said, yes, why not? Right. It's like something to do. <laughs> I was pretty young. Um, awesome. So off I went. So you're in the, if I remember correctly, the biomedical informatics program at Stanford. And, yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, to be honest, you're, you're that crew. You have Nikesh as part of that crew too. That's right. I, yeah. And Nikesh is honestly, I tell Nikesh all the time. He's next up. Nikesh, He's yeah. he has to he's next up to build a great company, so he needs to he needs to get on that actually, and I'll I'll, I'll write him, we're writing the first check right. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nikesh, you're free to raise your hand if you want. Uh, but how was uh, grad school? You, you had a lot of great peers in your yeah. class. Uh, you know any any like kind of formative stories and experiences while at Stanford? Yeah, I mean just looking back at it, um, it was kind of crazy, right? Because you know, there were like the BMI program, biomedical informatics program, is pretty small, but um, I felt like a lot of us um, went on to be involved in interesting things just because at that time, if you wanted to be involved in genomics, especially, there wasn't really a genomics program. There were definitely some people in the genetics department at Stanford, but a lot of the computational biology converged on this BMI program. And because it was early, it was just a few people. So then, um, yeah. There, it just turned out that that led to a lot of uh, companies getting started, honestly, was the main thing. So looking back at it, right, I was in Seraphim Batsiglou's lab for, for a time. And out of that lab came DNA Nexus and, and Council. Biology, Srinivasan was there at the time. And then Atul Buse and, and Ross Altman were part of the BMI program at various times. And that they started, or with a few other people, this personalis. Steve Quake was around. I was in sort of kind of drifted into Pat Brown's lab for a very short time. He obviously left Stanford, started Impossible Foods. Um, Gardent, uh, the, the co-founders of Gardent were in the Genome Center at that time, which is where Maureen was. Uh, Daphne Culler, obviously, was, was there um, teaching genomics. And Vijay Pandey was there teaching structural biology and stuff like that. Um, yeah, even Mustafa Ranagi, the former CTO of Illumina, was at the Genome Center at that same time as well. So there really were, like, in retrospect, a lot of people around who would go on to sort of start companies. Um, Serge Saxonov as well, of course, he was my, he was my lab mate, and he um, co-founded 10x Genomics, hugely successful um, genomics company. So yeah, I think pretty lucky to get sort of um, into that crew, you know, just know those people. Uh, it was uh, you also, very, you also, very lucky. You also, Maureen part of, Maureen's part of that crew too. So uh, your co-founder yeah, of Hexagon. Uh, I remember seeing this Sorry. picture, you know, Serge was having a baby shower. I can send you the picture. I don't want to yeah. dox Serge, but he's a baby yeah. shower. And there's a photo of uh, Nikesh and Maureen. I think you're in that photo too. Maybe not actually. And so it's just something something I find fascinating, you know, all these friends yeah. early on in their scientific career. And, you know, Serge is like, he built like, a, how big is 10 like $20 billion or something? Some huge yeah, company. Something amazing. It, yeah. It's going to be worth $100 billion pretty soon, one of these years. But uh, yeah. it's amazing to have all these talented folks together. And so what, while in grad school, what was the kind of the experience in terms of like, how did you learn about building companies? Was it just from professors yeah. or, you know, was it kind of always, was it like a blood pack that, hey, we're, we're going to all start companies or, uh, or something, yeah. something like that? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think, so for Serge and I, we were both, I think, very interested in uh, industry <laughs> more than academia. And we were both in uh, Doug Brutlag's lab. And Doug had actually been involved in a lot of startups that sort of, previous cycle of biotech startups. Um, I just been sort of like, yeah, part of that scene. He was very uh, pro-industry and um, that just seemed to be the way that his lab was trending. Uh, people out of his lab often went to, well, 
one fellow, one guy went to Google and someone else started some kind of chip company that I don't remember. So it was quite technical as a, um, as a lab, but not very, uh, not particularly like, you know, paper focused, like the, the lab wasn't publishing a huge number of high impact papers. We were sort of like developing tools, um, which was very, um, uh, useful, I guess, for, for industry or training for industry. And then the, the BMI program also, interestingly, was was pretty industry friendly. There had been a bunch of companies that came out of there over the previous sort of 10, 20 years. Um, and again, it was a it was a program that was very focused on making tools, like sort of the one of the very first projects out of the BMI program was like diagnosing diseases using computers. Right. And you can imagine over the over the years, a bunch of companies tried to sort of solve problems in that area. Like, can you take electronic medical records and turn them into something useful. This was the idea. So I don't want to say it wasn't like an academic program, but it was very tool focused um, and very sort of practical. And I think that's partially why so many of the people in there went on to um, to start companies. I guess the other the other factor was that, you know, the, the computer science department had seen a lot of companies come out. And then we were sort of like, vaguely connected to computer science, right? Like a bunch of BMI people would be in computer science labs and you sort of see a Google started, you know, five years before or Yahoo or all these like CS companies. And that sort of starts to make, you know, the, the gears turn, right? It's like, well, if that happened for, you know, the internet, maybe it should happen for genomics and what would that look like? And, you know, and that was part of it as well. Yeah, I'm more convinced it's the latter. Just if you see yeah. somebody run a, if you see someone run a four minute mile, you're like, oh, maybe I could do it. And so I think in, yeah. in, in startups, you just see, oh, somebody who kind of looks like me, talks like me, did yeah. really well, maybe I can do it. And, yeah. and, and then you should go from there. But maybe yeah. shift gears, you should go from Stanford and then you go to a third talent hub and you start, yeah. you, you're the one who builds it though. I mean, uh, so you go to 23andMe, as the founding scientist, I don't know. If, I know Serge was, yeah. was Serge the first employee, or were you the first employee? I, I, I'm, I'm Serge always, was, I, yeah, yeah. Serge has the mantle, right? He's the first employee, and you're, yeah. you're the founding scientist. Um, yeah, we were both founding scientists. I think that was the same title. Serge finished um, before I did, finished his PhD. So then there was kind of like, I don't know, a couple of months of delay <laughs> between us. But yeah, definitely Serge. Okay, I'm always <laughs> something, something, uh, uh, but. Uh, so you joined 23andMe. I remember you built the fab team, you know, Fa, Aaron, and Babak. That's a very legendary talent hub you built. But uh, what made you <laughs> want to, uh, 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 you know, all three of those people are superstars. I think Fa is, a, they're all great companies now. But, yeah. uh, but what made you want to join 23andMe? Yes, yeah, so Serge and I had been discussing sort of what, to, what would be a, a fun thing to do. And like you said, other um, people coming out of Stanford were starting these companies and having huge success, and we we wanted to be, uh, to do something like that. I think it was always going to be something internet related at that time. That was kind of like the the thing, um, and also genomics related. So we had been sort of trying to figure out what we could do in that um, in that area, and these SNP chips, genotyping chips, were kind of coming out. Um, and there were papers coming out saying, you know, if you have this SNP, then you have this condition or you have this predisposition to this condition. So that was kind of like what we had settled on as something to do. Um, and we had sort of like started assembling, um, you know, a pitch deck, just trying to see like how it would work. And then we met Anne Wojcicki um, and Linda, the, the founders, and basically decided, you know, they had already funded it. Um, had a great name, <laughs> um, and it seemed like they had, you know, a good vision for what they wanted to do. Um, like specifically, Anne really wanted to do something big in healthcare, and not just sort of, you know, sell things online. Um, so Serge and I joined basically with the idea that we would build the science and the technology behind it, um, and that's what happened. That's how it worked. I didn't know that. Okay, that's cool. Okay, you you and Serge were kind of doing your own thing and then happened right. since you met Anne who's just you know had Google money so okay might as well just join her uh versus compete and then yep. and so what, what was the kind of that first year like because you're kind of 
you know, 23andMe is definitely a category defining company. Right before 23andMe, there's no such thing. Yeah. It was like, I think Bill Bohr has a joke. It's like sending your DNA through the internet. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so, yeah. What, what, what were the opportunities? What were the challenges? Because it definitely wasn't just a drug company. It was, no. it was, it was like, it was amorphous. And how did, how did you, how did everyone on the founding team just wrestle with these new ideas? And, you know, yeah. you're, you're definitely a regulatory, you had regulatory issues. <laughs> you had, you know, consumer adoption stuff, but that first year, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, the first year I think was not so crazy because we were just figuring out technology, right? It's like, well, which chip should we use? And there was an upstart company called Illumina at the time that was, uh, you know, one-tenth the size of the the Gorilla Affymetrics. Like it was a small, small company, (laughs) Illumina, but they had this really good chip technology and we had sort of like decided this was the thing we would use. Um, so we started working with Illumina really, really early, actually, um, before their sequencer took off. And um, that was really the first year. I think things got much crazier after we started to sell it. And that was, I, I don't know how long that was in. But the thing that I always find kind of strange or, or hard to um, hard to grok now is how controversial it was that you would be able to get any health information online. So um, WebMD, I think, was somehow grandfathered in. Like there, you can sort of Google your symptoms and get something back. But anything that involved a test was extremely controversial. And again, it's it's hard to like <laughs> it's hard to believe at this stage. But um, Anne or sometimes I would like go on these radio shows and just defend the idea of being able to get your data back. Defend the idea of doing genetic testing outside of a doctor's office defend the idea that like you wouldn't it wouldn't lead to something insane happening like you know x percent of people um you know have the incorrect paternity therefore it's going to cause you know social unrest because five percent of people or whatever the number you get is are going to find out that their father who they thought their father is not their biological father or they're gonna you know overdose on something or whatever and these were like not unusual things to hear for for us. These were like the normal sort of worries. So again, like now it seems like the most normal thing in the world, telehealth and getting information online. But at the time it was really surprisingly controversial. Um, And that, and we got shut down a couple of times along the way, right? We got shut down um, because we were doing testing like in in a facility that was like technically research use only we had sort of you know figured that this was okay by talking to people but you know regular regulations are pretty fluid right even though they're written down it's sort of often at the discretion of whoever is running that agency so we sort of found that we had to be very (laughs) flexible um when something happened we just had to figure out some other way to you know run the tests or or whatever um, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty crazy ride. I also remember one more thing, I guess, on that topic. I also remember sort of presenting at um, the American Society of Human Genetics. So this was still is kind of a big human genetics meeting for scientists and almost like getting booed out of there. I, I wasn't the one presenting, but they were really, really angry at the idea. And I think partially it was because these um, genome-wide association studies were getting published, but then nobody was really expecting that anyone would use the results. So it's kind of like you can publish something and then assume like, okay, whatever. It's just data, right? It's just out there. But then we were using the data, right? We were using those um, that information to give people like knowledge about their um, health. And that made uh, the academic geneticists extremely angry. And it took a few years, um, it took maybe 10 years actually, before it became normalized. And now a lot of those professors started companies <laughs> that do the same thing, right? Or do it in a slightly different way. But yeah, it was it was controversial everywhere. Interesting. Well, that's, that's really exciting. I mean, one thing about 23andMe is that I think early on, the adoption is driven by celebrities. Um, yep. Do you meet any cool celebrities? Early on, did you meet like? Did you meet like uh, Brad Pitt yeah. or something? Or <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he was around. There were random people coming in and out of the office. Um, 
I don't. Uh, the coolest one is probably uh, James Wilson. Right, I met James Wilson. He oh, came back. Cool. Here That's awesome. Um, spent some time with us. The gene therapy guy, right? Just. Uh, I'm sorry. Did I say James Wilson? James Watson. I'm, James I'm Watson. Oh, James Watson. That's even better. Well, James Watson. That's, yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty polarizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, very very uh, controversial, but um, yeah, very. Uh, unusual person but you know still came by the office uh kind of That's a cool. famous character and that was pretty cool eric lander came by a bunch of times i know he's not like exactly a celebrity but um he was sort of like i don't know he and Anne knew each other and they were so he would come by and sort of give advice sometimes i do remember goldie hawn and whoever goldie hawn's <laughs> husband were in the office at some point but i don't remember why or if i met them that's hilarious. Um, anyway, yeah, occasionally there were, but most of the time it was just, you know, some scientists and some computers. So you met, you met Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. That's, that's pretty, that's, that was a pretty Kurt good celebrity. Russell, yeah. Those are pretty good celebrities, actually. I don't think I met them. I think they were in the office, though. They were like okay. some hanging out. You're, you're in the vicinity of celebrity, at least. Anne's a celebrity now, anyways. <laughs> yeah. Right, but, right, uh, right. Uh, so for 23andMe, you're, you're kind of doing incredible science, but you also create a whole new category and that's kind of very rare in biotech to kind of yeah. you know do business model innovation and like try to yeah. do, you know a uh, scientific uh, just make technical progress so we're, yeah. we're, you know let me reflecting back on that experience you know what kind of key lessons have you learned you know have yeah. you have you have you you know do you think that like more 23andme's can exist in the world or is it just kind of was this kind of a one of one off thing that happened just the right place right time you know and too right I, I would say and yeah. played a huge role in the success of the yeah, company absolutely. given you know just she she was able to hunker down she had the money to hunker down whereas maybe yeah. other founders wouldn't be able to do that so you know any any kind of lessons maybe and maybe even lessons that can't be replicated yeah i i think that there's definitely room for more you know dtc help um, companies, I think that's just getting started. I think things like Butterfly are a good good example of that, right? It's sort of like um, this is a, an ultrasound device. It's portable. It's not really DTC yet, but I think that's the kind of thing where I would love to see a lot more of that and it just get normalized. I think 23andMe did have to honestly break down those a lot of those barriers, and I think it was an expensive thing to do. So, like you said, and was extremely important for, for just having that. Um, persistence and keeping at it and not sort of like pivoting to uh you know providing through doctors right because a lot of the other companies that came up at that time uh were sort of direct to consumer but not really direct to consumer they would sort of act like direct to consumer companies but you'd still have to get your doctor involved and we were really sort of adamant or really Anne was adamant that we would be truly direct to consumer um, and I think that that really has made a big difference. And I think hopefully other companies won't have to go through that sort of expense. It'll be easier to go sort of straight to um, selling to people that need whatever it is you're selling. Um, Absolutely. I mean, you know, we have a bunch of copycats. And so yeah, yeah. 23 and me definitely just did all the hard work to show like, yeah. hey, this is, this is really possible. And then, yeah. you know, 23 and me kind of, added on drug development capabilities and then uh, congrats, yeah. on, congrats on going public. That's, that must have been, a really, that must have been a really exciting day. Uh, that was uh, cool. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe we could shift gears towards kind of the meat of the conversation, you know, what you're building at Hexagon and how you made that transition. You're at 23 yeah. Me doing all this work. How did the, how did, you know, even Hexagon get started? Was it just running into Maureen? Uh, was it, yeah, how did that yeah. go? Because it seemed like it was a kind of a, 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 maybe a year or two gap in between yeah. 23andMe and Hexagon. So how did, how, how did that process go? Yeah, so I left 23andMe and then I, I sort of knew I wanted to do something a little bit different to diagnostics. So at the time, diagnostics was really not a great um, field, even though it wasn't that long ago. Um, it it kind of seemed like you had to do either non-invasive prenatal testing or liquid biopsy or something that's a lot like 23andme those were kind of like the options for um you know and i think they still probably are the options for a, a dna-ish uh, diagnostics company so i really wanted to do something in therapeutics um 
but somehow using genomics because that's you know what I know. Um, so I left when I left 23 May. I didn't have another job, but I did sort of want to do some experiments and try and just see what's going on, like put, put my head up above the um, above the water and have a look around because things had changed pretty fast, right? When we started 23 and Me, um, everything was chips, so it really had been a long time, and obviously. Uh, things had switched pretty fast to sequencing in those years. So um, I started writing that the blog that you mentioned, that was kind of part of it, just sort of in order to force myself to you know, write things down and say what I was doing. I felt like that was a useful exercise. And through that, actually, I met a lot of interesting people. Like I met Justin Farlow from, from Serotony, and then you um, through that process. I met um, you know Rich Stoner at Synthego through that blog and a bunch of kind of people that were thinking along the same lines. How do we automate biology? How do we use genomics for therapeutics? How do we scale some of these problems um, to do more things, explore more proteins, do more sequencing, whatever it was. Um, so anyway, that was a very useful sort of year or two. Um, I also did a project with Jake Glanville. So um, got to know Jake through Nikesh, actually. Nikesh introduced us. So Jake Glanville, for those who don't know, is uh, CEO of Centivax now, but he used to be um, CEO of Distributed Bio Antibody Company. So I've been working with Jake um, for a little bit during that time to try and develop an antibody library. Um, and that actually worked out pretty well. That was um, a fairly successful endeavor that we, that we started. But it was hard, honestly, to do all that stuff by myself. It was just like, uh, it was, sort of difficult to to be like a one-man show a little bit. So then I, I started working with Maureen and Colin Harvey at Stanford um, as sort of computational biology consulting, sort of to figure out what they were doing, see if there was anywhere for me to fit in. Um, and around that time, they had just gotten this heterologous expression platform working. So for those who don't know, heterologous expression means you take the genes from one organism and you put them in yeast, and then you get the yeast to express those proteins. So you get it expressed in a different host. And they had had a you know, hugely successful project there to get that working um, for fungal genomes in yeast. And then it became pretty clear sort of through the process of working with them that there was a, you know, prospects for a company here. And basically within a few months, we had you know, decided this was the thing to do and started pitching. Yeah, really cool. I remember reading the paper, like the, the Hex paper, like H-E-X, I think Colin, Maureen, Pablo. Actually, Pablo was on the paper too, yeah. uh, if I remember correctly. And so okay, they had this work at Stanford to, you know, express biosynthetic clusters in yeast yep. and they make all these natural products. And then you were helping them kind of build out the data, data capabilities. Yep. Um, what, what was the kind of the moment that like, hey, uh, um, this is a company we're going to start yep. this was it was already a company when you, you joined or was it was it kind of like uh, no. or was it just a project it was really a project i think when i joined i'm um, certainly um maureen had been interested in in startups um around that time so I, I think she was open to the idea it's not like they they had no designs on doing a startup and then i said hey you should do a startup i think it was kind of natural um, and then I think part of my role was like, you know, I had been through that process before, so I kind of like, you know, could reassure them a little bit that, yeah, you can start a company. Yeah. You know, we can, we can pitch this. There's enough here. Um, just sort of basic stuff like that. And then just, you know, the starting a company, it's, it is a little bit mysterious, right? Like what do you have to actually do? How? What do you have to say to VCs? That kind of thing. It's not rocket science, but it is um, something where you know doing it once does help a little bit. So that was partially my role as well, is just to be, um, you know, someone to say, yeah, let's do it, let's go. Yeah, yeah. I think out of all the four co-founders, you had the most industry experience. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you did, right? Uh, oh yeah, which yeah. is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I think I think yeah, fundraising is an arms race. It's always kind of the words yeah. are changing. The, yeah. The, the, the deck format, the expectations are always changing. So things yeah. that would have worked 10 years ago probably don't work now. 
but uh yeah actually it was a lot i think it was a lot easier um just there was more money when hexagon started than when um 23andme started especially for genomics right when 23andme started there were no big genomics companies really at least that i can think of i mean myriad was the really big one right two or three billion dollars that was like a huge diagnostics company and everything else was dwarfed by myriad genetics so nobody really thought there was a lot of money to be made there and there were no dtc health companies really at least big ones but when hexagon started or today you could point to like a lot of genomics companies you can probably i mean Moderna, I guess, is a good example of something like that. But um, it's really a different world now. So yeah, it was it was a different experience and a lot more VCs as well. Yeah, I think I mean what mid two thousands. You had this whole like sequencing wars, so yep. nobody really, nobody even knew what platform was going to work out. And then yep. I think I think once I think Illumina started winning around two thousand. 12 maybe i don't know i don't know i, I think it was before that yeah before that it was before that you know better than me uh and then that kind of then enabled all these other companies to build on top of illumina uh yep like you know yep. like hexagon and so i think i think proteomics it's like a proteomics mm -hmm. proteomics is right now it's it's in a platform war we'll see which one wins and yeah. if, uh, whoever wins that proteomics platform war hopefully it's, we're an investor in glyphic so hopefully it's glyphic oh cool uh so hopefully glyphic wins uh yeah but uh, we'll see, uh, and then that will probably mm -hmm. enable a whole new generation of companies. But you know, yep. for Hex Hexagon, maybe we could use Hexagon and also Twenty Three and Me as kind of a you know, case studies for understanding the role of computation in biology. And so, yep. what was the premise of Hexagon uh, when, when it got started? So yeah, the premise was that we could do um, well. First of all, we should um, sequence the Earth because contained within these fungi, right, are a lot of valuable drugs, but we've only sequenced 0.1% of the fungi in the world. And we've only seen, I don't know what percentage, but a, you know, a fraction of a percent of the molecules that they make. But within that, we've seen penicillin, the statins, cyclosporin, like some really important drugs have come out of this. So the idea was like, if you could examine the genomes of all of these fungi, then you could choose the most interesting drugs instead of just sort of finding them by chance. Sort of penicillin is obviously the most famous example of that. But the other natural products that um, you would have heard of, mostly they're found by chance. You know, you just sort of grind something up and see if it has an, uh, a biological effect. And that's how the statins were discovered, for example. So it's sort of like about systematizing that process, scaling up, using computation and automation to make something that was more like a reproducible um, process for uncovering drugs from the from the global metagenome. And I I don't know um, I don't know that everyone likes this analogy, but for me I I really like the analogy of of building a factory because I think the good thing about a factory is that you can like measure the inputs and the outputs and you can make it reproducible. And I feel like there are a lot of advantages to that um, compared to a process where you're sort of relying on some inspiration or some discovery to make the next drug. I think I would prefer to just scale up a process and improve all of the steps of the process and make it work, um, you know, make it work reproducibly so we can find a lot of drugs and not just, you know, get lucky and find one drug. Yep, I think uh, Mark DePristo has a good analogy. He's, he, he sees it as like a Ferrari team. Every yeah, week. interesting. It's actually a great analogy. And yeah. you know, like every week he wants to run his platform, a big hat, and see how fast yep. he can go. Like a Ferrari car. And, you know, you know, Enzo Ferrari, though, was uh, brutal. He's pretty brutal, though. So yeah. uh, <laughs> hopefully you balance that out. But yeah, I yeah. totally agree on the, the concept of like industrializing biology and then like, yeah. You know, exploring the full space, especially in, in, in for for microbes, where is this something like ninety nine percent of microbes can't be cultured under like standard or is it ninety six? Some big number. People say that, but I yeah, I don't. I'm not sure if that's true actually. Um, yeah, there's some controversy about that number actually, so I'm not sure what the answer is. Yeah, be, but certainly, many cannot be. It's, it's a big it's a big number that can't yeah. be cultured through like traditional means. So that's why sequencing is so valuable. Yeah, just like sequence everything, and then now the hard part. This is what Hexagon solves, expressing those biosynthetic clusters mm -hmm. in your mm -hmm. kind of 
platform and then you can express mm-hmm. mix, you get a mix and match and you get to express any natural product you want yeah and so uh, maybe you can also talk about the world of data and that whole process you know you kind of sequence the sequence the world yeah well, at least the microbial world and then you have to then find what's valuable in this milieu of dna and then express mm-hmm. it and then try to mm-hmm. make a drug out of it can you talk about that whole process from a, just like a just yeah. like a, a platform perspective, but also a team perspective. So the one thing yeah. I, I had to brag about, Hexagon, I think it might have the best software engineering team in the world in biotech. Probably, uh, yeah. I think it does. <laughs> think Brian, great, great job. I seriously, Hexagon has the best software engineers in biotech. And it's really crazy how you hire these people and yeah. ret- retain them. So maybe you could also talk about that too, the t- yeah. uh, building the data platform out, but also building the team to build that platform out. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, you got to sort of differentiate between the software problems and the computational biology problems. I think some biotechs will sort of merge them. So they'll have sort of bioinformatics in charge of like their databases, but also like computing over their databases. I think we've been pretty strict about separating software and computational biology, because I think, frankly, computational biologists are not usually good at software. And software engineers shouldn't be messing with biology probably without training. So I think there is, um, it is good to divide them up and get specialists for each if you really want to scale it up. And I think, yeah, we've we uh, hired four of these engineers from Palantir, very senior, among the most senior engineers at Palantir actually, um, who had left sort of after you know many many years sort of do, building up Palantir. And I think part of the reason they 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 joined is just they were excited about sequencing the earth and just the the concept of finding a microbe decoding its genome looking for a drug and expressing it in another organism there's something appealing about that and i think you know it's it's a little bit jurassic park right i I think it's interesting that ginkgo talks about jurassic park so much because i think it's just a cool it's just a concept that grabs a lot of people (laughs) this jurassic park concept of making biology. So I guess synthetic biology really is what it what it boils down to. So yeah, we brought them on. Um, we also gave them, honestly, a lot of responsibility um, and sort of took them on almost as a, a, another founder. So they came as a group of four. So I won't say like one of them is a founder, but as a group, they, they came on at sort of like founder level of responsibility for building out the infrastructure, the limbs, the, just the data architecture, all of that stuff was was on their um, on their shoulders, and that was great for me because then my team could focus on computational biology, right? Which is what what I'm really trained to do. I'm not I'm not trained to do software. Um, I don't know how to be a software engineer, and nor do I want to be. So that that really helps with with hiring for for my team. Interesting. So you guys hired like a, a software Borg. So you got, <laughs> software board, yeah. That's the lesson. Yep. Just hire a Borg of software engineers if you if you can find yep. them. That's the that's the lesson for Hexagon. I'll see the team building. But yeah, you know, and I think honestly, like a lot of companies could not have hired these guys because we had to bring them on as senior people in the company. Most biotechs will hire, you know, according to their pay scale or whatever. It's okay, you're an engineer, you are worth whatever percent. That's how you know this must be laid out. But we just decided these guys were transformative and we wanted them and we were willing to sort of sacrifice our I don't know, sacrifice is even the wrong word right it's like we thought they would substantially increase the probability that the companies would succeed so then it's very logical to give them you know um their, you know their fair share of the company right yeah but i think hexcon was one of the first movers to like just you know pay for talent on the yes. software side and you're seeing right. even companies like Icon now, led by yep. Roger Perlmutter, and they're yep. like bragging about how, man, we have all these software engineers. And it's like, this yeah. is Roger Perlmutter. He's like old school biotech bragging about his software engineers he has on his company. So I, mm-hmm. think, I think Hexagon definitely uh, another pioneer in terms of like oh, how thanks. to build a, a platform uh, in biotech. And so maybe- Someone, you Yeah, someone must have had words with Roger Perlmutter because I think that was not his attitude. <laughs> somebody, recently. somebody educated, somebody, I don't know. Somebody he, educated he, him. He, yeah. he retired and then he must have yep. met, he, he must have talked to somebody and somebody must have yep. opened his eyes. Uh, yeah, EQRX know. too, right? Similar. It's a, Alexis is a little more, he's a little more f- 
open-minded flexible also jacob yep. oppenheim is there actually we're gonna have, we're have yep. jacob oppenheim here in a week to talk oh, about cool. you correct it, it, he's incredible he's incredible actually. yeah he's great uh but uh yeah, sure. uh you introduced me actually so i i've kept in touch i kept in touch, kept in touch. I mean, jacob's one of these superstars too i think he manages like a team of 30 40 people now he corrects it's crazy wow. it's crazy actually uh but maybe you could talk about the value of data the value of software in drug development at least in the context of a hectic nothing confidential but maybe just yeah. a high level like what what has it enabled you that maybe another company couldn't have done you know 10 years yeah. ago yeah i think um honestly i think there are sort of two ways to do a biotech um and probably you want to do one or the other, not like halfway. I think one way is to just run it like a lab. And then you can just use whatever software you want and just essentially have use the brains of your scientists to drive programs forward. You know, let's say you're starting with an asset or you're starting with an idea and you want to um, do medicinal chemistry and improve on this asset. Then I don't know if you want to hire you know, expensive software engineers. And if you hire sort of some software engineers, I don't know if it really is going to move the needle for you, right? So I, I think there is maybe a distinction between the type of biotech that needs software and the, and the type that doesn't. And I, I think it's definitely possible that biotechs will start hiring software engineers because they feel like that's a thing that biotechs need to do now but not really reap the benefits. Because I think, honestly, you only reap the benefits when you get to scale. Until you get to scale, you sort of, you're sort of adding um, layers of abstraction or layers of indirection on top of the work. So if your scientist wants to do a new type of experiment, now they have to sort of have a new table or something in the database. They have to somehow talk to the software engineers to get, you know, uh, to get a setups so that they can do that experiment. So you're slowing, you could be slowing yourself down. With Hexagon, right, we wanted to build this pipeline that we, pr we pretty much knew what the pipeline was from the beginning. You know, you put genomes in one end and you get drugs out the other end. And there are, you know, 10 steps in between that are not totally fixed, but we wanted to do it hundreds, thousands of times. We wanted to repeat the process. So for companies like that, where it's like a true platform and you want to repeat something, um, that's where it becomes really important to have good software and good um, algorithms, honestly, good data analysis on top of things. But for some companies, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I feel like there's a tendency to sort of recommend it for you know, data is necessary for every biotech. I, I guess I'm not sure if that's really the case. I think you have to make sure you know what, you're, what you want before you start on that road. Um, as a quick example, I won't name the company just in case, but somebody at a, at a big company told me that they had a lot of, they had spent a lot on software, like a ton of people, tens of people, a good 20% of their company was, was software and data science. And they really weren't getting a lot out of it because they had too many projects. So then the number of software engineers per project was so low that nobody was really satisfied with the software. So even though it was costing them a ton of money, they felt like it was, they probably should have run it as, you know, 10 independent labs almost, each one responsible for its own business. And that would have been um, freeing, I think. So anyway, that's a hard question. Yeah, I think it's just like a lot of these, if you call them AI, AI drug discovery companies, they kind of yeah. look like CROs in the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, they kind of, you know, in, you know, in Citro, Hexagon, they kind of, in the beginning, they're kind of spending all this money, recursion, all this money yep. to like build all these fancy tools. And it's like, oh, it's, yep. is this going to be valuable one day? I hope so. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. that's the whole premise. At, at scale, it becomes valuable. Mm -hmm. yep. And so, you know, like, do you have a framework in terms of thinking about, you've alluded to this, it's like some, some biotech companies have like a, Hypothesis, say so we mm -hmm. have an antibody that binds tau. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Yep. Let's, just, let's go do that. Boom. Yep. We don't need data yep. for that. We just got to go to the trials. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's another premise of saying, let's sequence the world and mm -hmm. we can find all these cool, we can, we can find all this new chemical matter. Yeah. Do, do you have a framework in, just for founders on how to like yeah. match the platform to the prom? Um, or, I think, or, yeah. I, I think you kind of know. 
what what you need or, or you should know what you need. I think, you know, Big Hat versus Denali, I think is a good sort of um, comparison. So both very smart companies, both working on antibodies, but I think really, really different approaches. And I don't know that one is right and one is wrong. Certainly the Big Hat model is the one that I would be drawn to, right? They want to build a system for, you know, making better antibodies quickly and improving the process, improving the tools. And my sort of, I don't have insider information about Tenali, but my, what I've heard is that it's sort of run more like academic labs and they don't really have centralized infrastructure data or whatever. But I think, you know, it's possible that this is actually the right way for Tenali to run there, to run things. They have some extremely talented scientists there and they know how to make antibodies and that's what they're doing. They're not trying to build up process at least i don't i don't think so from the outside so i think you have to kind of like work with your strengths a little bit right like mark to pristos and, and Peyton green sites their strength is clearly like computation and thinking about things in that systematic way um and the denali people their strength is you know they know antibodies inside and out and they know alzheimer's and parkinson's inside and out and those those neuro diseases so yeah i think as long as you work into your strengths you it's okay um, you just don't want to like hire software engineers if you don't know what a software engineer is for, because then you end up with a big software engineering team that you don't know, that you can't derive value from, you know? Totally agree. I think that kind of comes down to the business model then. Maybe we could yeah. shift gears to the next section. We're like, we're an investor in Big Hat. Thanks thanks for introducing to Mark too. <laughs> oh, I introduced you to Mark? Wow. You, you did introduce you to Mark. I mean, we got, before we started Big Hat, it was like he was at Google yeah. and uh, he was just He's trying great. to- he was trying to fish for ideas. And so we, we actually talked a lot about enzymes. He was, uh, as an early idea, but he yeah. ended up doing antibodies. And he, he, he found his perfect match co-founder of Payton. Payton is the perfect match for Mark as yeah. co-founder, seriously. Uh, but maybe we could talk about business awesome. models of biotech and AI. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know Den- maybe Denali is very focused on just therapeutics in the clinic and that's mm-hmm. one business model. And then Big Hat's building a platform out that can then get partnerships, get scale, and hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, one day build up a, a larger pipeline of medicines. Yeah. Uh, how do you think, how do you think about business models in drug development and maybe business models in general? Cause you, you know, you've yeah. been part of a lot of creative companies. Over- yeah, I think there's no real wrong way to, to do it. I think traditionally um, sort of partnerships with pharma were, were tough um, because they just took a long time, like pharma was slow, and they wouldn't really pay for early assets, like or certainly wouldn't pay for data. They would pay for molecules, right? Pay for um, actual assets. That's been sort of the way it's been for a long time. I think it's I think it's changing a little bit. I don't think it's as, as bad now as it used to be. Um, but then I also think there's a lot more money available, right? As everyone knows, there's just a ton of money floating around. So if you do want to build your own program, your own internal program, you can get enough money to do that, I think, these days. Whereas, for for example, with 23andMe, it would have been really difficult for us to raise enough money to become, uh, to go at therapeutics really hard in, in the first, I don't know, five, eight years. Because the money, I don't think, the money wasn't really there, I don't think. But now, I think it's easier. So, I don't know, kind of a wishy-washy answer, but if the deal is good, you know, it's okay to partner. There's no, there's nothing wrong with partnering, right? Yeah, but I think there's always, historically of drug development, there's always ebbs and flows. And yeah, when, uh, it's like there's a project, I used to watch Project Runway. So like Heidi Klum, we see what, one, yeah. one, one day you're hot, one day you're not or something. I like Heidi Klum. But uh, yeah, yeah. She, she would say, like, she had that quote or something. And so sometimes in biotech, CRISPR is really hot. Yep. I'm assuming CRISPR is not going to be so hot in 10 years or one of these years. Right. Uh, right. And it's, you know, gene therapies is in a dark age and, you know, the indruggable genome, right? It's like yeah, crazy. Yeah. Well, 10 years ago, drug care ass, that's ridiculous. Now you have mm-hmm. Amgen and Marathi. And so mm-hmm. at least for Hexagon, maybe for your business model, you, know, you have such a wide-ranging platform. You sequence the world, mm-hmm. you get all the chemical matter, Mm-hmm. How did you fo- how did you focus on a specific problem? You, know, you could do infectious disease, you could do autoimmunity, mm-hmm. you could do oncology, you could do mm-hmm. 
you can, you can go after KRAS, you can go after ship two, you can go after a whole host of different targets. How did you, yeah. how did you get that process of honing that down over the years? Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of simple in a way, like, um, anti-infectives are good for hexagon because we make these very potent natural products and sort of, um, traditionally the strength of natural products is they are very, very specific for one enzyme and they are often just manufactured as chemical weapons and you know sort of famously the most toxic molecules in the world are uh, natural products like um, botulinum and um, ricin and these things so it's a really good fit i think two-thirds of anti-infectives are actually natural products still um, so as long as it's very specific to the bacterium or the fungus, uh, you, you can make a great anti-infective that way. I think it's kind of like almost the, the natural way to do it. And then oncology is pretty similar, right? You want to find um, something undruggable, ideally, and then match it to a natural product that drugs it. And there's a history of natural products interrupting protein-protein interactions and hitting undruggable targets and just generally disobeying the laws of, of drug development, you know, being very large, but still getting across the cell membrane. Um, instead of directly interrupting a protein-protein interaction, they can grab another protein from within the cytosol and, and use it to interrupt a protein-protein interaction. Things that you really can't design with, you know, traditional chemical synthesis methods, like you can't even use AI to get there. You have to use sort of hundreds of millions of years of evolution to get there. So that's really where the strength of the platform is, is in hitting these undruggable targets and protein-protein interactions and just sort of these new these scaffolds that you can never really develop in the, in the traditional way. We can find them in nature and then, you know, leverage the work that evolution has done um, to, to make those drugs. Yep, I think yeah, experiments of nature are very powerful. Whether yeah. you're trying to discover new CRISPR, new, new gen, gene editing technologies, or new cancer drugs, letting, letting nature invent it is a good starting point. And yeah, you can, you can optimize it later on, and and and, and uh, really awesome. I think we have a clubhouse. Yeah, to catch if you want to join the stage, you're welcome. But I think we have a question, so let's uh, sure. let's see, let's see how this question goes. But uh, sorry for uh. Hey, Roxana, how are you? If you have a question Hi. for Brian, love to love to hear it. Yeah, thanks a lot. So yeah, so um, as a PhD student um, in genomics and also part of an institute that does a lot of like sequencing and data and stuff like that, um, some of the things that I find hardest when thinking about um, companies and startups from this area is actually um, is how do you get from that amount of data to an actual product? And I think what you did that is great is you combined this with wet lab. So I was just wondering, mm -hmm. because I, I looked at your co-founder and she also seems to have a computational um, genomics background. So I was mm -hmm. just wondering, how did you go from from that to integrating wet lab? And um, yeah, cause like you, yeah. How did you, how did you integrate that? Yeah, that's, that's a really important point. So I think there are companies that can sort of be almost entirely dry, right? Like. Um, Atomwise and, and Schrodinger, true computational chemistry companies, but almost always you you will want to partner with someone with um, wet lab experience. So Maureen, uh, the CEO, had worked in uh, wet and dry labs. So she had worked, I think, most recently in Ron Davis' lab at the Genome Center, and then Colin Harvey, our other co-founder, is a chemist who was working with Maureen. So he was totally wet lab um, for all of his his training. But I think it's a really good point that you can't just do genomics and have a company. You have to have some kind of product in mind. Um, so if you think about like all the straight genomics companies, almost all of them are in diagnostics because for companies like Color, Invitae, Council, if you can sort of master the software and maybe the automation and the you know variant analysis part of it, then you can sell that, right? You're done. You don't need a very strong wet lab component to make that work. So it's really, it's kind of partially a question if those diagnostics companies are, if that's covered, right? If we've covered diagnostics already, 
and there's a lot more free space in therapeutics, then you definitely need some wet lab support. You can't just do it with dry lab. Okay, thanks a lot. I wasn't really yeah. aware of your co-founder who was a chemist, but uh, did you did you have the platform sort of already invented or patented before starting the company, or did you kind of develop it after kind of incorporating or something? Yeah, so the heterologous expression platform was working at Stanford and kind of like a prototype stage. You oh, know, sure. it wasn't automated or really industrialized at all, but it got you from beginning to end a few times in Colin's hands. So we were sort of confident that we could extend um, that work and you know scale it up. But yeah, there is a big advantage to doing that kind of work within a university. So the university ends up owning part of the company, obviously, because they own the inventions that, that happen at Stanford or wherever. But honestly, I think in most cases, that's probably worth it because you get to spend, you know, uh, grant money developing ideas and you don't have to, you know, answer to investors every year about why you're not making progress. You get to do a little bit more exploration instead of just picking something and, and going for it. So, yeah, I think that's actually a good way to do it. Yeah. Th thanks a lot, Brian. That That's very sure. helpful. Awesome. Great question. Um, I think we're coming on the hour. Yeah. Uh, so, Brian, do you have any, like, kind of final thoughts or advice from your experience? I think some useful tidbits are, like, how to set culture. I think, um, you know, yeah. how to build a board, right? Build, that may be something else to talk about. But any, any kind of fi you know, final, like, tidbits of advice for, you know, potential founders out there? Um, I'd say, uh, you know, choose your first few employees very carefully. <laughs> it's really the most important thing. Um, and I think over the years, like probably when, I don't know, not that long ago, right? It wouldn't be crazy for a founder of a company, especially a software company to have, I don't know, 10% of the company. And then the first employees to have point something. So some very low percentage, 0.1, 0.3%. I think things are changing there. And I think the companies that sort of recognize that will, will do better. Because I think there's a lot of demand for talent now. And it's a lot clearer who has talent and just who's in demand. So you have to be willing to, um, you know, give your first employees enough equity that they feel like they're part of the part of the team you know have responsibility and then then you get better people and that pays back pays itself back you know it's i feel like a lot of companies make that mistake they just don't pay for talent i think yeah but i think that's what highlights your career <laughs> being part of all these yeah. great talent hubs from Trinity yeah. to Stanford, 23andMe, Hexagon, and probably beyond. I think you, you find a good way to be around talented people. Seriously, <laughs> seriously. I, that's that's a, that's a, and so you do a very good job. I think one thing I'm observing, totally agree on the talent side hiring. I'm also seeing companies like get rid of vesting. Or yeah. like modify, modify vesting actually. Yeah. Say, hey, I like that. Uh, screw this vesting thing. Just here's, here's half your shares now, half your shares in a year. And it's not do this four year vesting cliff thing and so i think i think that oh, interesting uh, it's, 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 so i think about the the cliff. i've never heard of that that's interesting oh, there's weird uh some of it's just we got we're all in biotech at least it's a apocalypse for talent yep. it's really hard yeah it's really it's hard to find, hire ras to be yep. honest and so uh well it, it is, is and it isn't right if you paid 25 percent above market it wouldn't be hard that's the thing right it's like you can get the best ra in the world if you and it's not that expensive. It's just yeah, but then you, you got to pay for then, talent. But then I'm poaching it from you, or I'm poaching it from yeah. you know a, a friend's company. So it becomes kind of a it's a little bit of zero. I think SES. Uh, it's, it's a whole yeah. other conversation. But yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe it's, it's really hiring is really hard though right now. It's like the it's like the hiring hardest thing hardest thing about a startup build a startup right now is, is hiring. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, uh, maybe to wrap it all up uh, for Hexagon or maybe just personally, anything you're looking forward to over the next year? Oh man, uh, I don't know. I'm looking forward to, I don't know, developing 
the platform and i don't know i got i got no answer to that okay, one cool. Maybe some... we're, we're just in the middle of it we're in the thick You're of the it thick you know? of, i'm assuming it, it's, it might be some confidential stuff and i'm assuming hexagons are going to have some big announcements over the next year so uh yeah really looking forward to it uh yeah uh, it's interesting you think you're you know you think you've done your inflection and then there's always another inflection point <laughs> like you're, there's always another way to double something and um it's just uh yeah there's always a bigger hard boss to look, there's always a bigger, hard to look too far ahead yeah exactly there's always a bigger when you play a video game there's always a bigger boss just, there's just a bigger boss exactly. just another quarter but exactly. uh yeah. cool this is really fun brian we should uh yeah it's hit great uh, we shall, Nikesh, you and I shall all get lunch in Palo Alto one of these days. That'd be cool. Sounds great. And yeah, then if, if you're in Berkeley or SF, just give me the, the ping on it. But uh, we'll cool. hope people enjoyed this and found this useful. And yeah, Brian, thanks for doing this, man. And uh, we'll talk soon. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, Josh. Talk to you later. We'll have a great day, everyone. Bye. Bye.